podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at CypherCast.net. And follow us on Twitter at CypherCast.net. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Dave. And we'll be your guides along the path of suns. Today we sing, You Are Always Someone Else. Once again, we're dipping into a collection of of stories from Neil Gaiman's The Sandman to get ideas for our surreal games. Join us on the path of suns and you may uncover a secret or two. When we cast You Were Always Someone Else, we discuss sources of inspiration from other games and media for our Invisible Sun games. Today we discuss the anthology collection Dream Country, which is volume three of Neil Gaiman's uh, comic book series, The Sandman. We've previously discussed volumes one and two. I believe volume one was Fables and Reflections, which was the story of him collecting his artifacts um, and getting kind of returning to power as Dream. And uh, Doll's House, uh, where he had to address problems that arose because uh, Dream had been captured for decades and decades. Uh, After that long arc, Volume 3 is a series of individual issues, each with their own singular story, um, as a bit of a break before the Volume 4, which will start another long arc. So this will be different in that we're not talking about one narrative, but instead uh, four separate kind of pieces. And we probably won't talk about them all to the same degree because uh, they they provide different degrees of inspiration for our game. But we'll talk about each of them. Uh, before we start, though, uh, so the, the four stories are uh, Calliope, A Dream of a Thousand Cats, A Midsummer Night's Dream, and Facade. And we'll describe each of these in turn. But did you have a favorite? Um, I, I don't know if I have a favorite. I really liked a lot of stuff in Calliope and I think the dream of a thousand cats is really cool. I like the ideas in there. Um, Midsummer's Night Dream is the one that I think sticks with me, you know, the most when I came back to this series, it's the one I remember showing up, but, but, you know, William Shakespeare is kind of a recurring character in this series. So I think that might be why I remember it so, so well. That makes sense. Yeah, I, I'm. Uh, Clyde is probably my favorite. Um, Midsummer Night's Dream is is not in part because I hung out with too many theater kids in high school, mm. and when you do that, you are grossly overexposed to Midsummer Night's Dream yeah, to the point I where it's just that. noise. <laughs> 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 and um, I'll, I'll some of my other complaints I'll mention when we get there, but there's some things we can draw from it as well. Uh, and it is by no means bad. Don't get me wrong. I'm just comparing no. it to other Neil Gaiman stories, so it's got a very high bar to clear. Yeah, I think I'd probably go with the Dream of a Thousand Cats, uh, just because it's Dream shows up in a in a very different form, and it's interesting and fun. Yeah, it has interesting implications for the the universe in which the story takes place. Uh, but let's go in order. Uh, so the first story is Calliope. Like I said, I think this is probably my favorite, but it might not be the one that had the biggest impact on me. But we'll get back to that. Uh, I'll just give short descriptions of the stories that don't spoil much. Uh, so that people can, of course, enjoy reading these, uh, but so that you also have enough of a grounding in what's going on so you understand the the conversation if you haven't read the story yet. So Calliope is a story about an awful man who buys a muse 
with a magical object called a bezor so that the muse will inspire him. And uh, this doesn't, then it becomes a Twilight Zone episode. It doesn't go the way he thinks it will. Uh, incidentally, Calliope is uh, the muse of epic poetry. So it's mentioned in the story that she was allegedly Homer's muse, for instance, or for, for example. And um, I don't remember that episode. Of, was that like season three of The Simpsons? Of The Simpsons? <laughs> Simpsons has always done it. Um, oh, are you talking about a different Homer? Uh, different different Homer. Sorry. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. Old, old, old school Homer. Oh, like season um, one? <laughs> um, like the, um, uh, oh, the what shorts. was the show? Yeah, the shorts on the sketch comedy show. Yeah. Right. Um, Carol Burnett's Maybe. Show, right? Car- no. No? <laughs> no. Um, no, a little earlier than that, Greek Homer, and uh, which makes more sense why he'd be, you know, uh, inspired by a Greek mythological figure like Calliope. Mm-hmm. It's also interesting that there's a parallel between this story then and Dream's story, because Calliope had been captured in World War One and held in captivity, uh, so she could only inspire one writer for the decades between World War One and the story set in the, I guess it would be eighty, late eighties. Starts in the eighties, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that implies that epi- the, the muse of epic poetry was, and, and by extension, then good epic poetry was r- removed from humanity for those decades, just like dream was removed, was removed. And we had all of the consequences that we talked about with doll's house. Well, compli- uh, Calliope wasn't specifically tied to epic poetry in the story that we're reading though, because she was inspiring. Right. These were, well, then it becomes, is since the novel didn't exist as a literary form in Greece, what form would epic poetry look like today? And uh, there's a sense that the, the novels that are being written, that are written as inspired by Calliope are epic in their scope. But it's a very loose interpretation of epic poetry. Each muse has their own domain uh, in which they are inspirational. Uh, it so happens that Calliope's is epic poetry. That's not central to the story, but it is kind of interesting to play with. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot, though, we can borrow from the story. Uh, one of the most interesting is the object that's traded to, for the muse, the bezor. This is a uh, an ob- These are. This is not a term that Gaiman creates. It is uh, a classical sort of magical material. It is some object that has been retrieved from the digestive tract of a human or an animal. It's actually also an incantation in Invisible Sun. Oh, an inca- what, what does the incantation do? Uh, it removes some sort of, uh, I don't know, cancerous or, you know, bad material from a person not specifically their digestive tract i don't think mm-hmm. um, but it's it's something that will remove something poisonous or bad for you from your body and turn it into a weapon that will i don't know if it's a permanent weapon or just something that has like a it, it might be more of like, like an ephemera object that it turns into that makes sense yeah and so it, it's the, it is playing on this notion that mm-hmm. uh bezors are this foreign material inside your body yeah. though i think in classic the classical definition it is specific to your digestive tract but that, that that's somewhat yeah. of a guess on my part uh the uh story refers to this as a trachina bezor 
that we were doing a little bit of research and that might be a typo uh, because uh, we've looked at, there are looked at different types of Bezoars. The Bezoar in the story is a clump of hair. Uh, and it's uh, maybe also interesting that it's connected at one point directly to something called Rapunzel syndrome, uh, which is where people who with long hair will chew on or suck on their own hair. And that will mean they will naturally ingest this hair and that and it can sometimes then cluster as this Bezoar. But Super gross. It's, it's very gross. And they even point out that, you know, the smell is because of all the undigested food that is trapped in this cluster of hair in the digestive tract. Uh, there, there's a variety. We looked at this, the, a variety of types of Bezoars, though, um, some of which are kind of interesting. Uh, there's the phytobezoars, which are, again, these clusters of undigested material in a digestive tract. But these are, would be based on indigestible vegetable fibers. So when we dared somebody to eat a bag of corn husks when I was working at the produce department in high school, he probably developed a phytobezoar. I don't know what probability, but that would be the sort of thing that would create a phytobezoar. I still think it'd be pretty rare. I don't know. He, because he ate a lot of corn husks. <laughs> it would still have to be kind of, it'd have to stop itself in the process in uh, of digestion in some way for it to cluster up that way and not itself be digested mm-hmm. um, or at least expelled, we'll say. Right. But yes, that's the sort of thing uh, that would be an indigestible vegetable fiber. Uh, there's another tough one to pronounce, the diospirobezoar, which is specifically a phytobezoar composed of persimmon fruit. Oh, so when we dared this guy in the produce department to eat a bunch of persimmon fruit, he probably developed one of these? Yes, with some probability between zero and one. <laughs> I'm not going to do this for all of them. <laughs> Um, so, and you could, I don't know how, I didn't look up a comprehensive list of all bezoars, but there are bezoars of specific vegetable matters and a variety of other specific types. Um, and basically if you can find a Greek word for it, you can make a bezoar uh, of some type. Arachnobezoar. Um, next, uh, <laughs> <laughs> what's the lactobezoar? Did you, did you get the definition for that? Oh, no, I, I'll get to it. Um, so yeah, so lactobezoar is going to, lactose for milk. So yeah. it is going to be uh, probably the accumulation of lactose or other materials caused by drinking a lot of milk. Gross. Uh, there's pharmacobezoars, which would be, of course, medicines that accumulate in the digestive tract. Um, and then fi- finally on this small list I found are trichobezoars, with trico is the prefix that it, the Greek prefix that actually means hair. So I'm pretty sure trichobezoar is a bezoar made of hair and trachina bezoar in the story is simply a typo. But that doesn't yeah, matter. Right. Uh, these are a, a potential magical material or magical relic that be that would fit well within an, an, an invisible sun game. You could tell a maker that they have to find this particular type of bezoar uh, to empower something they're creating. Uh, or you could have it available as sort of a, a an ephemera item, or uh, you know just just some sort of of uh, weapon or spell material. So there's lots of it's just an interesting material to be used um, in a game that has its own backstory. And with Invisible Sun, you might even have bezoars of magical creatures. So it's not just like from a vislay, let's say, but a a, a, a bezoar that is. Uh, gestating in the digestive tract of a giant sandworm from the red sun or something like that. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, the last element we wanted to pull out from the story is the uh, when things go poorly for the person who has uh, captured and assaulted the uh, the muse, he gets cursed. Uh, and this curse is that he gets more of what he always wanted. He wanted the muse because he wanted to be inspired and to have a career as a novelist and this and screenwriter and all of these writing sorts of roles. And he um, gets that. But uh, with, with the muse, when the muse is going away, he's desperately afraid and he's going to lose his inspiration and won't be able to write anymore. So he is cursed instead with having an overabundance of ideas. And so he, he just starts vomiting forth different short story and novel ideas, and he cannot stop them. He's driven mad by all of the ideas that he has uh, bursting out of his head. And I have to think this is a statement by Gaiman about Gaiman. <laughs> and both the uh, lengths to which he will go for inspiration and the frustrations of having more ideas than he can ever fully develop. So it's really a, obviously a, a story about story writing. Yeah, I also like how it's taking the idea of being cursed with something that you were looking for. It's like, oh, I made a wish and this wish is getting twisted on me. Uh, so th this I thought was a really good way of demonstrating how that can actually work and be a punishment when it's something that you thought you wanted. Right. And that gives it that Twilight Zone sort of feel. Uh, but th that's all the inspiration. We've got, we've got three more stories to get through. So we've got to jump through these. The second story is A Dream of a Thousand Cats. Uh, a cat hears an ancient story that cats once ruled humans, but that humans dreamed of ruling cats, and these dreams were powerful enough to overturn the natural order. This cat sets off to convince enough cats to dream that cats will rule the humans uh, to establish a new order. This is uh, the, the, the germ of the story is that dreams shape the world. And that if enough people dream the right thing, you can change the world, which is uh, a common theme enough, common enough theme to be a cliche. It is, uh, you know, in the title, it suggests that a thousand cats will need to dream uh, the same thing to change reality. And there's kind of a joke in there for all cat owners that no one's ever gotten a thousand cats to do the same thing. And so uh, it really it's impossible to change reality by getting cats to work together because cats never work together. This is fun in and of itself, uh, but it's, I'd also want to tie it back to our discussion a few weeks back of the emergence and the philosophical tradition of the social construction of reality, because this is uh, kind of an illustration of how uh, enough belief or dream in this case can change reality. And this might be the kind of story you could tell using the emergence that the emergence are a group of people that in different words than we've used before, uh, believe that if enough people dream the right dream, that dream will become reality. One thing that I want to kind of amplify from the story is that uh, the dream itself doesn't just change reality moving forward. It also involves a rewriting of history. At one point, uh, one of the cats asks, if there was this earlier age where cats ruled humans, why don't we know about it? Why don't we hear about it? Why don't we see the evidence of it? And the storyteller cat explains that when the dream of humans rewrote reality, it also rewrote history. 
So it uncreated all of the history of the previous reality, as well as establishing these new rules. So hypothetically, if the cats were to all dream of uh, dominating humans, the new reality would involve them not only doing that, but having always have done that. <laughs> that it would have been, it would be written all the way back into history that the new reality is also all of history for that reality. Yeah, this is a lot like other things that we've talked about in the past. Right. And, and um, intellectually, it's also kind of interesting that, you know, if you change, you know, part of changing or part of creating a new ideology is very often reinterpreting history and saying mm -hmm. history is not what you thought it was. It is through a new lens. It has a whole new meaning. And so in some sense, you're rewriting history whenever you are trying to dream a new dream, uh, especially a socially shared uh, dream that would change the rules of our reality. And with Invisible Sun, the backstory includes some interesting notions of what history really means, mm -hmm. what deep time means for Invisible Sun. Uh, and you, you can kind of play with that, with this notion of uh, the, the power of dream. The third story is A Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, dream is a patron for an acting company and asks them to put on a performance. And the performance is not is at a at a, a location that used to be a theater before there were humans, which is itself kind of just an interesting concept he throws out there and doesn't go back to. Um, and the audience for this particular performance is actually uh, a group of people or group of fairies from the fairy lands, specifically Oberon and Titania and Puck and these other characters from Fey uh, mythology. So it's a play about mythology to an audience of those same myths. Now they were putting this show on because uh, my recollection of this uh, and when I was reading through it again this morning, like they're doing this in order to, you know, tell this story so that people remember these stories and these characters and these people you know, for generations, right? Yes. Dream has commissioned them um, with, with a particular story um, it is, there's sort of two levels at which that is true. On one level, um, Dream mentions that the reason he likes Shakespeare so much is that he will create the material of dreams for generations and generations. And I think that's speaking to the entire set of writings of Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. But there's also the more specific meaning that by including these characters in this particular play, he is ensuring that they will exist as dreams for the same generations and generations because of all the people influenced by a Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah. And if you look at this through the lens of, you know, patrons in Invisible Sun, you know, Dream is giving Shakespeare this voice and wealth and, you know, he's taking advantage of that in his lifetime. And what Dream is getting out of it is, you know, these acts and these plays being performed in very specific spots and, that might have something to do with, you know, how the power between in their patronage is working. Um, but it, it follows that. Well, Invisible Sun follows that same kind of idea of how the patrons work. Right. It's a mutually beneficial relationship for Dream and Shakespeare because Dream can inspire Shakespeare. But then Shakespeare can sort of translate those dreams into a form that will persist beyond a lifetime. Mm hmm. And so this is a little bit about how, you know, dream is inspiration and inspiration can outlive even the life of its uh, author. There's, there are a couple of, uh, of uh, 
couple of pieces of dialogue that also indicate that this was a, a there was a bargain struck by Dream and Shakespeare, and that, so this is a persisting relationship. Uh, but mostly, I think of this as just being a pay on to Shakespeare because Gaiman really likes Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also sowing some seeds for later stories in the Sandman story arc, uh, but those will you know come along later, and they're very procedural rather than thematic. So it's it's kind of interesting to it, it, I, there's still some you can draw from this um, because you have this intersection of the fae and the humans, and almost in the reverse of what we typically expect, it's then the humans performing for the fae. Usually, we think of the fairies as being characters in stories that are being performed to humans. So it's kind of a reversal of that relationship. But I could see this being uh, something where a delegation from another sun is coming to the indigo or somewhere else, maybe mm-hmm. the blue. And re- residents or people who are currently in the blue, uh, Vizlay, uh, perform for that delegation. And so this notion of an intersection of worlds and a performance as the justification for that intersection uh, is something that can be borrowed for Invisible Sun games without much difficulty. Yeah. The last story is tough. Um, so the simple description, and maybe the, simp- the, the plot is the simplest of all of these, a largely forgotten DC he- her, uh, superhero character, Element Girl, who is just a side character from old Metamorpho comics, is depressed and wants to die. This story does not feature dream. Uh, it does feature death uh, uh, herself uh, in the episode or in the issue. So it's much more a death centric than dream centric. But this is a story. I said that it might not be my favorite of these four, but it had a really big impact on me. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, this might've been the first serious treatment that I had seen of trans identity. Now, Hopefully that won't get me into too much trouble because the character is not trans, sort of. This is a female character who was transformed uh, and became the superhero uh, through the magic of superhero transformations into a character who can turn herself into any element. But she also sort of feels like her body no longer expresses herself. And that's where I got the sense of like, this is really telling a story of trans identity. Now here it's not trans in terms of sex and gender. Mm-hmm. It's trans in terms of this kind of superhero superpower thing, because to be honest, 1989, a story about seriously directly addressing trans identity would have been super hard to publish in DC yeah. comic book. But this really has the feel of that. And I think it, it, it accomplishes a lot in trying to explore the pain of feeling that your body does not express who you are. Uh, and the only way Neil Gaiman can get away with this is by not really making about it sex and gender, but also using a character no one cared about. <laughs> no one even remembered Element Girl from like the 1960s or something. Uh, that character has reappeared, but uh, really, even to this today, uh, not many people would know who Element Girl was, even among people who follow DC Comics fairly closely. So uh, this was sort of a throwaway character. Uh, This is also in an era to tell you how throwaway the character was. They had more or less already told Gaiman don't use any DC universe characters Mm -hmm. in the first arc. They had the justice league appear, but after that 
across the Vertigo line, they more or less said, do not have crossovers with traditional DC characters because the Vertigo comics were considered adult reader comics. So they didn't want people to, you know, younger people to pick them up because they see Batman or whatever. Um, and so they had created these walls, but this character was so inconsequential. It kind of passed right through those walls <laughs> because the, no one was fighting to retain the, um, you know, ease of access to element girl. The, so the getting back to sort of the theme, um, element girl feels that her, like her body is simply a facade. And this is sort of personified in the fact that whenever she wants to go out in public, she has to create a fake face that looks human, but isn't actually her face. Again, this is why I think it just, this just screams of trans identity. It's she's mm-hmm. putting on this false face because she's trying to conform to the expectations of others. But the faces, what that she creates being fake will dry up and fall off fairly dramatic representation of this, of, of the flaws in trying to uh, embody a, a person who, who you don't, who, who's not you. Um, it, this is also a, a, an example of my favorite techniques that Gaiman is, I think about as good as anybody at is that he reappropriates elements that seemed simple and um, maybe trivial in their original presentation. So a lot of these elements, like the masks that grow and fall off, uh, a, a mention in the story that Element Girl has to create fake metallic hair that looks human in order to pass for human, but, it, but anyone who touches it will know it's actually a fine metal and not actually hair. And I think even uh, the scene where she's tipping off her cigarette and dropping ashes into the old masks that have fallen off of her face, I think all of those are actually references to the old 1960s character. Like this, while those elements are intimately tied into the story of identity, that stuff was back in the 60s, but he's reframing it in this way to help it to help express the character's pain. Um, in uh, the kind of mismatch between who she feels she is and who she feels she has to pretend to be uh, with this facade. So it's using these old ideas, but reframing them in a way that really feels like it's telling a, an important uh, story uh, in a way that we never would have thought would have been told in the sixties in a comic book. In Invisible Sun, this is relatively easy to adapt and to some extent. Um, of course, it's something we've talked about many times. This notion that you have the changeries and that people can change their bodies to represent whatever they feel they want their body to be is kind of a radical element of the uh, setting. It means there does not have to be a disconnect between who you are and who you what you look like. You get to decide what you look like. Uh, this is a story of what happens when someone feels that disjuncture and in her world, she can't just go to a changery. Uh, the changing of her body, I don't know if it was non-consensual, but at least the, it is now uh, something she doesn't want to have. Um, and so she is stuck in this body in a way that people don't have to be an invisible sun because of the changeries. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine a character that you meet at a changery as someone who has kind of discovered that they are not comfortable in their body and they're using this to match their body to who, to their self and sort of the healing and uh, 
well, let's, let's stick with, you know, healing properties of that changing process available in the visible sun, which is not in even the DC universe uh, and certainly not in ours. Yeah, seems like Element Girl's story would have been a little bit different if she had, you know, access to a changery. <laughs> and so it's an illustration of how you can use changeries to tell stories about trans identity, though in Invisible Sun, it's much more uh, likely they can be framed positively. Mm-hmm. Like, here's how you could uh, here's a process by which you can ensure that your body expresses yourself and that you don't have to face the pain of that that mismatch. But you could also include in that sort of a, a better understanding of what that pain is like and why people would want to go to a changery. So that was just four individual stories from volume four of uh, Neil Gaiman's The Sandman. You could see, you could pick out little pieces here and there from these various stories. Uh, the series is pretty much entirely like that. You can pick out things. Um, and these anthology collections are particularly popular because they don't require an investment in ongoing storylines. And you don't have to remember that 30 issues ago, Sandman made this offer to this person, and now this is paying off in this issue. These are largely self-contained stories. And so a lot of people who don't want to dive into an entire 75-issue story arc, because it's all kind of one arc to some degree, can instead pick up volume three, um, and I think it's volume five, uh, that are just these anthologies. You get these individual stories uh, without the same investment, but still find material in it for our Invisible Sun games. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from DriveThruRPG. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monty Cook Games. You can find a link to their website in the show notes. You can find our blog at incantationspodcast.blogspot.com or email us at incantationspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at Agonseer, that's at A-G-O-N-S-E-E-R, on Twitter. And you can find me at Tex underscore Red on Twitter. So please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes uh, or whichever uh, podcast app you are using. Uh, It really helps us out. Uh, We also like seeing ratings and reviews, whether they're good or bad. Uh, or else just tell a friend about the show. That's another great way to get the word out and ha- help people find us.